The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I remember getting a phone call. It was the night of, and it was from my friend Nikki. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? We were just with her. What do you you mean? I was just like, oh my God, this can't be real. I was literally just hanging out with this girl. We all were pretty much in a state of shock. You know, we were just like... I can't believe this happened, you know. She always seemed to be smiling and real goofy. She was a sweet girl. She was a sweetheart. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. She's in her Talk Murder to Me sweatshirt, discontinued, but like a classic. Honestly, it's why I cling to this and the Stranger Things font, the First Degree sweatshirt that you made. I think people want them back because I do. I want another one. Mine are getting kind of beat up. I wear them all the time. Those were very limited edition. We need to drop some new merch soon. Yes. I'm going to get on that because uh, people need it for the summer months. You know, we're done with sweatshirts. We got to get some good tees out there. I love like a nice wide leg sweatpant. Oh, is that possible? Uh, I'll look into it. Please. Let me know if we can sell more than one to Alexis. Pants are hard. I want several. Okay. You can buy them up when we can't sell them. Yes. (laughs) Before we start our episode, I just wanted to remind everybody about our Patreon and thank you to everybody that has joined recently. We have so many new firsties in the firstie underground, which is where our Patreon lives. We have so much bonus content for you. Our full length episode, sometimes they're even longer than our first degree episodes in our Patreon every single week. Yes. And uh, their cases we're really passionate about that we just don't have the opportunity to tell on our main feed because we don't have an interview for them. But they're cases that have components that need to be further looked into. I just feel like any true crime brained person will love what we're doing over there. Absolutely. So go ahead and join that if you haven't. And should we just jump into the day today? Yes. After I remind everyone that we have a lot of two and three parters coming up. Yeah. And on Patreon, you're going to get all of those all at once. So when the first part comes out, you're going to get part two and part three if applicable. So if you don't like waiting, if you're as impatient as I am, (laughs) that's where you need to be. It's for all the bingers out there. Totally. I love it. So today is May 10th. It is National Root Canal Appreciation Day. What a day. I love this. I mean, I've had a root canal. It was awful. And my best friend in New York, 
Rita. And Rita is a diligent listener. She's listening right now. Hi, Rita. She's my best friend since second grade. She is an endodontist and she does root canals for a living. That's all she does is root canals? Yeah. And she had to go to like three years of extra school after dental school to be an endodontist. And root canals, they hurt, but not with Rita's tender hand. So all of you, good luck who need root canals. Find the right doctor. Go see Rita. Go see Dr. Rita. All the other days kind of suck, except for it is National Shrimp Day, bitches. Oh my goodness. I love shrimp. What's better than a freaking fried coconut shrimp with a nice I had a calamari last night, which is nice. Oh my God. I need some seafood tonight. That sounds so good. You do. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. When we consume true crime content, lots of us prefer cases where no matter how horrific and confusing the events may be, at the end, we can all tie it up in a neat little bow and know that things are resolved. But sometimes, despite a case essentially being solved on paper, there's still a cloud of uncertainty that lingers over a case. And perhaps this happens due to a confluence of factors and nuance surrounding this case, whether it's because something like a gag order, a plea deal being taken to avoid a trial, or maybe even records being sealed. Sometimes in cases like the one we're exploring today, the public will never be privy to all of the facts behind a conviction or the perpetrator's full story. And often that's for a pretty good reason. And just because we're left with all these questions doesn't always mean we have a right to all the answers. However, we can try our best to piece things together with what we have. So we begin today's case on January 12th of 2006. The New York Rangers retired the number 11 jersey for NHL legend Mark Mezier following his stellar history-making career. I hope I pronounced his name right. I'm not a uh, baseball fan. We're not sports gals. Nope, that's hockey. (laughs) I'm not a hockey fan either. (laughs) So... Hype was also building in the week leading up to the 63rd Golden Globes, where the films Brokeback Mountain and Walk the Line, and actors Philip Seymour Hoffman and Felicity Huffman would all go on to be winners. In the world of pop music, Don't Forget About Us by Mariah Carey was number one, with Run It by Chris Brown following in the number two spot. We are not Chris Brown supporters over here, but that's what was happening. And at the box office, cult horror flick Hostel was the highest grossing film, followed by Disney's adventure fantasy, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And the setting for today's case is Bel Air, Texas. So Bel Air is situated in southeast Texas, in Harris County, which is kind of where Houston is. It's basically in Houston. And the city of 17,000 people is located almost 200 miles west of San Antonio, and like I referenced, is part of the Houston, Sugarland, Baytown metro area. And Bel Air is basically a built-up suburban area of Houston, hence being known as the City of Homes. So obviously, it's heavily family-oriented. And while the name is spelled differently than the Bel Air in Los Angeles, it's not unlike the upscale California enclave that it shares a name with. So regular listeners will know that I have a boyfriend named Matt, and he's from Houston, but his dad was actually the Bel Air police chief until his retirement in 2021 Hmm. after a 45-year career. And I actually flew there 
and I went to the Bel Air Police Department and I went to the retirement and it was beautiful. And Bel Air is a beautiful place. And when I was researching this case initially, Matt's dad was quoted in all the articles. So he's super familiar with this story. Wow. He was involved. I know. It's it's like first degree to the second degree. Exactly. In an interesting sort of strange way, right? But based on Matt's dad, his name's Byron, based on his experience in law enforcement and just going to Bel Air, it's this super sort of beautiful, interesting community. And it also boasts one of the most prestigious public high schools in the entire country. And this high school is called Bel Air High. And over the past 50 years, numerous national merit scholars have graduated from the nationally acclaimed high school. And it's known for having multiple students in one year achieve perfect scores on the SAT. So obviously a great school. And most of the people we're discussing today in this episode were students at Bel Air High, including our first degree Nick. So if Nick's voice sounds familiar to you, he was also a guest on episode 245, which focused on the case of Sam Olson. So go back and check that one out if you haven't already, but we're going to get back to Nick. So Nick grew up in Houston and attended Bel Air High, which had over 3,000 students. Right. And while Bel Air is renowned for churning out a steady stream of graduates who excel academically, it's also not like any other high school that you may have attended. There's your typical different groups or subcultures, like you see in teen rom-com movies. Specifically, I'm picturing the intro to the movie Easy A Mm -hmm. that starred Emma Stone, right? You got the punks, you got the goths, you got the jocks, et cetera, and et cetera. At Bel Air High School, it was very clicky. So you had the jocks, you had the uh, cheerleaders, you know, the the drill teams and and the band kids. But at Bel Air, there was another group that Nick kind of felt a kinship with, and they were called the Tree People. They got their name from hanging out under a big live oak tree in the school's courtyard. And then there was the Tree People, who were basically the social outliers, all the goths, the artists, the theater kids, kids who had a problem finding somewhere to fit in that freshman year. The older emo kids would take them under their wing. And they called them the Tree People because we sat under a huge oak tree. It was right in the middle of the courtyard. I was a major Slipknot fan growing up, so I kind of emulated their style and wore a jumpsuit every day of my freshman year. And that's actually where I met Samantha, was under the tree. As part of this group of around 40 kids, Nick had become good friends with a girl named Samantha Stevens. And people lovingly called her Sam. And at one point early on after they met, Nick and Sam had a fleeting romantic relationship, high school romance. So Sam was a bit different and like Nick, didn't really fit in with the popular crowd. Not that either of them really wanted to. She was real awkward, you know. She wasn't shy. She was actually pretty assertive, but she was just odd. There was one time she led me around campus with a dog leash. She was like a pseudo girlfriend, I guess, at the time. Like we kissed a few times. I was a sophomore when this happened, so she was a freshman. We were the same age because I was technically a freshman, but I was in my second year of high school because skipping school got me held back. Nick really liked Sam, and he found her intriguing. She had what seemed to kind of have this do-no-harm, take-no-shit kind of vibe. She was a sweet girl. She was a sweetheart. She kind of had this Native American, Asian look going on, tan skin, but like Asian. So I actually had no idea that she was part Chinese 
when her and I were hanging out. She always seemed to be smiling and real goofy. She was the kind of person that would, you know, like saunter down the sidewalk ahead of the group in a silly manner. Nick didn't know much about Sam's family. It seems like she held her cards pretty close to her chest. So not many people really knew what was going on with her at home. She was kind of mysterious like that. And she was in several other ways as well. And like many teens, for Sam, her friends were her family. And they were a really tight-knit group. She was just one of those free-spirited kids. She just kind of lived life to live. She never really talked about her, her family life. So, I mean, none of us really did. We all kind of looked to each other as a de facto family. So Sam did tell Nick that they kept guns at home, but, you know, it's Texas. Owning firearms is par for the course, and most Texans have ready access to guns in their home. So for them, it's just a normal part of everyday life. Majority of houses in Texas will have a shotgun or a hunting rifle. It's Texas. Yeah, everybody has a gun. They just passed a universal open carry law. You don't have to have a license to carry a gun anymore. Like most teen romances, Nick and Sam's brief dalliance eventually came to an end. I mean, we never hung out outside of school. Well, unless you count skipping class, which was actually the one of the incidences that led to what happened. But there was like this whole like love triangle situation where people were like, hey, man, did you know that Samantha was like kissing Sean? Sean was another one of us. But like when I heard that, I was like, oh, OK, well, whatever. We weren't ever defined as anything, so I can't really be mad. I wouldn't consider her my first girlfriend, but, you know, first high school interest. I didn't know how to handle it, so I just kind of passively just accepted that it happened and moved on. I was pretty bummed. Navigating and coming to terms with rejection in high school is pretty traumatic, to be honest. Like, it's yeah. never fun. I'll say that. Still recovering. Yeah, same. But ultimately, there were no hard feelings between Nick and Sam. It was just, you know, high school puppy love after all. And he and Sam remained friends. And to him, that's what was most important. By the fall of 2005, Nick and Sam were hanging out with a crowd who preferred to spend their days anywhere but school. Eventually, we stopped spending time at school and started skipping altogether. And I don't know, that danger of, oh, we could get in trouble kind of just made things even more fun. The prospect of getting into trouble just makes things seem more exciting. Obviously, skipping school can get you in big trouble with your parents, but it's not illegal. And the things Nick told us that he and Sam used to get up to, including dabbling in some weed and skipping school and being naughty, it all sounded pretty normal, like run-of-the-mill high school stuff. Same stuff that I did, for sure. Jack, definitely not, because she was a goody-goody. But for me, this was commonplace. It's really the usual type of rebellious behavior that lots of teens engage in when they're testing their boundaries. They're testing their morality compass. They're taking risks and experimenting with the consequences of their choices. And even though they know they're going to be consequences, doing them anyway. There was this bayou next to the school, and it had this little alcove in it. There was like a backseat of a truck in it, and we had a bunch of crates and stuff, and we'd sit there and you know, smoke weed and just shoot the shit. We all knew that those phone calls went out. One of those like, F you, mom and dad, what are you going to do kind of things. We were just like, suck it up, buttercup. I mean, half of the kids' parents didn't even care. They were that crowd, the latchkey kids, you know, the ones that the parents were either degenerates themselves or that worked nights and didn't get home 
in time to receive that phone call. And my parents were the latter. So I'd get home, I'd, I'd erase the message off the answering machine. January 12th, 2006 started out just like any other day for Nick. He was going to take it easy and see where the day took him, but it didn't involve being at school. He met up with Sam like he usually did at their secret spot where they discussed potential plans. And as far as Nick could tell, Sam appeared to be in good spirits like she normally was. Typically in the mornings, I'd get dropped off in front of the school and then I'd wait for my parents' car to be out of eyeshot and I'd make my way to that bayou. And that's where we would all meet up every morning. Morning cigarette chit-chat. What are we going to do today? We went and chilled at the Chick-fil-A right nearby, had the breakfast, and then we hopped on the Metro bus and rode around Houston. We went downtown first, walked around, and then eventually went to a friend's apartment where we spent the majority of the afternoon. And around like 2.30, we started making our way back, and she seemed fine. She seemed like she had a great day. We all kind of went our separate ways to get back to where we needed to go. So after separating from Sam and going their separate ways, Nick made his way home that afternoon, like he did every other day after school, or after he skipped school, rather. But just hours later, that very same evening, out of nowhere, he received some truly earth-shattering news. I remember getting a phone call. It was the night of, and it was from my friend Nikki. And she was like, Sam killed her mom. Uh, I was like, what? What are you talking about? Uh, we were just with her. What do you What do you mean? She said she killed her mom. She got home and her mom was pissed. The school called her and told her that she skipped school. And I was just like, oh, my God, this can't be real. I was literally just hanging out with this girl. Nick's mind was racing at a million miles a minute as he tried to make sense of what the hell he had just heard. What happened after Sam got home? How could she have killed her mom and why? And what dynamics were at play in Sam's home and her home life that could have created a situation like this to even happen? Let's try to get some answers. So you know the drill. We got to go back. Nick had just heard about the sudden death of his friend's mother, a local woman and mother of two named Cindy Stevens. And the alleged killer was believed to have been Cindy's own daughter and Nick's good friend, 15-year-old Samantha Stevens. And we know that Sam had frequently been skipping school because she had been doing such with Nick, our first degree. And we also know that when she arrived home on the afternoon of January 12th, 2006, her mom was there waiting for her and she was not happy. So Belair High had called Cindy, informing her that Sam had skipped the last two days of school. And pretty much as soon as Sam walked in the front door after her day out with Nick, the pair started arguing. When Sam got home, her mom confronted her about skipping school and they like argued. And I don't know what happened, but it led Sam to running to find. I know that she had told me that they had guns hidden all around the house. So she had gone and grabbed one of the guns and she shot her mom. Like Nick said, as the confrontation escalated, Sam went to a bedroom and got Cindy's handgun. And as they continued arguing, Sam shot her mother twice before fleeing the house. Immediately following the murder, Sam called a mutual friend named Nikki and told them what had happened and what she had done. She called Nikki and then she left the house I believe they said she was hiding in a dumpster and they went to get her. 
and took her back to their house so she could at least be somewhere safe. Sam's friends rallied around amidst the confusion, wanting to both protect, console, and also understand how this could have happened. They were terrified about what was going to happen next and deeply concerned for her welfare based on information that was starting to emerge about Sam's relationship with her parents. And we're going to let Nick explain because this is where the official information we have access to starts to get kind of murky and less available. I do know that the group of our friends that arrived at Nikki's house were there. They were like, oh, we're going to protect you. But Nikki's mom was the voice of reason. You know, we got to do the right thing and, and turn her in. So I took a solo metro ride out to Nikki's house and everybody was there. And I was just like, what's going on? And they were like, Sam came here last night after she killed her mom. And so like, I had just missed her by an hour or two. And they called the cops and turned her in. And of course, doing the right thing, but apparently everybody had gone there that night to like try and comfort her. When I got there, Nikki had told me that things had been just really bad between her and her parents. Her mom lets her dad abuse her and everything. It was after the event that I had heard that she might have been suffering abuse at home. But that, of course, is hearsay. There wasn't any firm investigation on that that I had ever dug up or read. Right. And she never confirmed it herself either. Obviously, these are very serious accusations. And if it's true, this potentially adds a whole new sinister layer to what went down that day and why it went down. Now, we don't actually know either way whether any claims of abuse in the Stevens home have been or can be substantiated, let alone the nature of the alleged abuse or how long the alleged abuse was supposedly occurring. So we're going to come back to this later. But we're obviously, just going forward, going to be really circumspect about these claims and what we say because we just purely don't know. I take that with a grain of salt. We all were pretty much in a state of shock. You know, we were just like, I can't believe this happened. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, 
that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree 50 at factorymeals.com slash degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. According to the Houston Chronicle, the confrontation between Cindy Stevens and her 15-year-old daughter, Sam, which led to Cindy's murder, wasn't just a one-off. Things were said to have been very tense between the two for several years. And meanwhile, back at the Stevens household, Sam's dad had eventually arrived home at around 5 p.m. with her younger brother. Inside the home, he found his wife dead in the upstairs study. She'd been shot in the head and the torso, but there was no signs of a struggle, and Sam's dad ran to the neighbor's house and called 911. When officers arrived, they found a note, apparently from Sam, addressed to her dad, saying where she could be found. And according again to the Houston Chronicle, that same evening, Sam was arrested by police near Stella Link in South Main, which that's an intersection. And the next day she was officially charged with her mother's murder. The shock of the news reverberated across Air High School as both staff and students were in a state of complete disbelief, grappling with how this could have happened. And Nick was still processing his own confusion about his sweet friend doing something so monstrous. Again, according to the Houston Chronicle, the day after the murder, a counselor at the school met with about 40 of Sam's friends to try to help them process what they learned about what had happened. Nick himself did not participate, but Nick's parents were so upset and rattled by learning that their son's close friend had done this, they sat down with him and had a serious talk with him about essentially getting his shit together and getting back on the straight and narrow. After all, Sam and Nick had been cutting school together. Like this was one of his close friends at the time. So this was really a important moment for Nick And he really did the right thing with this moment. I passed on the counselor talk. My parents were like, you're getting your shit together. My dad put me into boxing the next day. He took me to a boxing gym, signed me up. And that was where I would spend my evenings going forward. I'd go to school. The counselor would keep tabs on me. Teachers were keeping tabs on me per my parents' request, especially because I was connected to the situation. 
They're like, please keep an eye on Nick. Let me know if he's in class or not. If he's not, I'll come and look for him. After that happened, I went to school. I made sure I was I was in every class. You know, I was going to the gym four hours a day, every day. So I started boxing and started hanging out with a different crowd. I veered away from the tree people, tried to do better by myself and by my own parents because the last thing I'd want is to find myself in a situation where I don't have the mental capacity or the, the patience to sort through an argument, especially with my parents. So in terms of what happened next for Sam, this is where things kind of get really vague from a media perspective for understandable reasons. Not only did the murder receive the absolute minimum coverage, but media outlets didn't release Sam's name, only her mom's, though they did release Sam's age and the fact that it had been a case of a mother being killed by her daughter due to an ongoing tension at home. And obviously, this added a lot of intrigue to the case, but when kids are under 18 that are accused of violent crimes, it's pretty standard practice for publication bans to take effect and for records to be sealed. And sometimes after the case is adjudicated, records are expunged. Right. So there was no question that on the face of it, Sam was responsible for killing her mom. But the big question that kind of hovered over everything is why she would do it why she would go to such extreme lengths. And from Nick's perspective, it doesn't make sense that Cindy's anger over Sam skipping school would have resulted in such a disproportionate reaction, which makes, as far as a speculative perspective, makes you feel as though something else was going on. But as it turns out, Nick wasn't the only one who suspected that Sam had been unhappy at home. According to the Houston Chronicle, following the murder, it was revealed that Sam had previously told two other students that she wanted to hurt her parents. The students reported the comments to a school counselor before the shooting, but like many things with this story, we just don't know what was actually done to address this concerning development, if anything at all. And understandably, Sam's friends were overwhelmed with guilt about whether they could have done more to prevent what happened. I do think it's interesting that she had said something prior. And they reported it. And they reported it and nothing was done. Like, at the very least, the parents should have been notified that yeah. your daughter is saying this. It doesn't look good. Especially in somewhere like Texas where guns are so accessible. Yeah. There had to have been a reason beyond just getting in trouble for skipping school. I knew that she'd never looked forward to going home. So anytime we'd skip school, you know, I I always walked home from school. So if I got home at six or seven o'clock, it wasn't that big a deal. We'd hang out and she just never seemed ready to go home. Like she just didn't want to go. I do remember that she'd say her dad would would hit her and her mom would hit her. It's still no reason to go and grab a gun. And if that was happening, and she didn't have access to the resources or the help that she might have needed. I could see how if it went too far, one might snap. Like, if if you're going to go that far, go all the way. It's not right to take a life, but there is such thing as justifiable homicide, too, especially in the state of Texas. There's a lot of speculation and conjecture around this. And in the absence of any specific concrete information, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to draw any firm conclusions about a possible motive. Straight away, we know from the reporting that Cindy's death was immediately classified as murder and not manslaughter, right? So it's not like Sam was messing around with a gun and it accidentally went off, or even that she was just threatening her mom and it discharged by accident. But if we're speaking very generally about why a teen might kill one of their parents, there's a few hypotheticals that come to mind, and we're going to run through those with you. 
So was there a behavioral issue here that the Stevens family was struggling with? You know, we all know that despite many parents' best efforts, kids can be willfully disobedient and defiant, especially if they've fallen in with the wrong crowd and become vulnerable to an influence. And that's not even taking underlying issues into account like cognitive capacity, neurodivergence, or even a pre-existing disability or brain injury that can affect their decision-making. Right. And we also know that at age 15, adolescents' brains are still in the process of fully developing. And they're not fully developed, last I heard, until 26, right? So this is especially so when it comes to impulse control and higher executive functioning in the prefrontal cortex. So absolutely. I mean, I think back on myself at that age, you're impulsive, you are indignant, like you don't you don't see any long-term consequences because you haven't been alive long enough to understand that they exist, right? Right. So this means that teens aren't fully able to comprehend and appreciate irreversible consequences like death and what that can actually mean, right? That's not even considering things like alcohol and drug use, which presents a whole lot of additional implications when it comes to decision-making. If you layer that on top of behavioral issues that might already exist, things can get messy really quick. And of course, like we suggested as a possibility, abuse could have been going on. And I don't want to say it was. I mean, it seems like, like we said, a very disproportionate reaction to being scolded about skipping school. And we've all heard stories about kids who kill their parents and then they claim that they were being abused. And the media has also reported on other instances of teens killing a parent who failed to protect them from the abusive parent, say if they disclose the abuse to the non-offending parent only to be dismissed, ignored, or worse, punished, with the adolescent acting out what they feel is the only recourse they have, which is they feel driven to this insane point, which should never be the option, right? But this is the response to feeling like their other parent is not protecting them. Kids turn to murder under those circumstances, according to the research. And we're not saying that in any way or another that any of these things are what were happening in this case here, but it is more food for thought in considering a range of scenarios that could lead to such violence. And it is something that Nick struggled to get his head around for a long time because he didn't really get answers either. It took me a couple of years afterwards to really come to grips that my friend killed her mom. You think you know somebody, and you think you know what somebody's capable of, and then you find out. I mean, that's your mom, first of all. I mean, I'm a mama's boy, so the idea of matricide is kind of unfathomable for me. Whatever happened that caused her to break past that point of no return, I personally think it had to have been bad. So in terms of the judicial process, it's not exactly clear how things progressed from the moment of Sam's arrest to her conviction. Again, this is probably due to a publication ban protecting her identity as a 15-year-old, and that is something she was entitled to. But Nick, who was there and really immersed in this entire situation, he heard a lot through the grapevine. From what I read in the articles, he totally basically disowned her. And also from what what I had heard, he kind of said good riddance. So Nick also heard that in July of 2006, Sam was sentenced as a juvenile, not an adult, and she served time in a juvenile forensic psychiatric unit run by the Texas Youth Commission. 
and he doesn't know any more given the amount of privacy that was afforded to the proceedings. But what's both interesting and important to note here is that according to the Texas District and County Attorneys Association, the terms guilty and not guilty don't apply in Texas juvenile court. I also think this is really interesting. We've had a couple cases that were taking place in Texas. They have some strange laws. Yeah. Like we had one that discussed the case of Jeff Wood, where he was basically, you know, sentenced to die based on this party rule when he didn't, he wasn't involved in the murder of this, this person. Like they have some strange rules. And I think what I found so interesting about this story is the leniency in this particular situation compared to every other Texas case I've ever read about, you know, minor or not, which I also think lends to our speculation, right? Like there must've been something mitigating going on here, right? Either way, on the heels of what Jack just said. So if a juvenile is found to have committed an act, the formal finding is that they've quote, engaged in delinquent conduct and they quote, need rehabilitation as opposed to they're convicted and they're guilty. Like it's mm-hmm. different language that's less condemning and life ruining, right? So if the accused and the state agree on the facts before the court, the juvenile does something called stipulating. It's kind of like an allocution. And they do this to the evidence. They enter a plea of true to the allegations as opposed to guilty. And if you're wondering if Nick ever got back in touch with Sam, he did, but it was brief. She was still receiving treatment within the system at the time. I did get in touch with her while she was in the ward. She was actually educating herself as well, trying to go back to school, building the credits that she missed. And if you can believe it, things actually get even more ambiguous. Because the only thing we had at our disposal is the records we could find about what's been going on since all of this, right? So according to Sam's records, she was sentenced to 25 years for Cindy's murder, and she was committed to the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. Again, there are more protections granted to juveniles regarding what's publicly available, which is why we don't have all the information, right? And in Texas, the decision about whether a juvenile is tried as an adult rests with the prosecutor handling the case, although it's the judge's decision ultimately. And there's a bunch of stuff the court considers in determining how a minor will be tried. Of course, they look at the seriousness of the offense, their background, level of mental and emotional maturity, and other mitigating circumstances. Like in this case, hypothetical abuse Mm -hmm. would be a mitigating circumstance, right? Any existing record and their prospects of rehabilitation. And unlike punishments in adult courts, Texan juvenile courts don't have minimum or maximum sentences, and instead juveniles may face commitment to the Texas Juvenile Justice Department until a specific birthday. But the other aspects of court protection for convicted minors is access to records. Minors often have their criminal records sealed to avoid them being labeled or unfairly judged for the rest of their lives after release. So this means juvenile records aren't accessible to the general public in the same way that adult records are. When you turn 18, your records are sealed on the condition that you don't have an adult felony conviction or any pending adult charges. And this was a really long way and an educational way to tell you that this is why Sam and Cindy's case remains largely elusive to this day.
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. After several years, our first-degree Nick learned that his friend Sam had been released following her conviction for the murder of her mother, Cindy Stevens. Sam was back out in the community, and she was trying to rebuild her life. And she actually got back in touch with Nick through social media. And it initially felt strange for Nick to be in contact with her after what she'd been through. I'm sure it would be for anyone, you know? That's a traumatic event, and he had a lot of empathy for his friend. It was a little awkward, to be sure. It was cordial. She was basically asking about all of our friends. She messaged me because she had a whole bunch of questions. She was on parole when she reached out. She was trying to get her own place. She got her GED and high school diploma when she was locked up. She took six college courses, all A's and one B, certifications for computer cabling and food safety. So she stayed productive. What makes Sam's release more of an anomaly is that Texas is notoriously strict on punishment and really tough on crime, but not in this case, which again likely goes back to Sam's age and the circumstances that led to Cindy's murder. Texas Juvenile Court is theoretically designed to focus on treatment and rehabilitation while keeping juveniles from entering the adult prison system. And it appears this approach was taken with Sam, which is actually refreshing to hear, you know, given it's Texas and all. Yeah, I was like, really? They usually just try to, like, give everyone the death penalty. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's funny. I think it's sad. And I love Texas. I've spent a lot of time there. I have several mats from Texas. I've had other exes from Texas. I just think they're a little too tough on crime there, frankly. Yeah. And I think innocent people suffer. But either way, perhaps Sam's release after such a short amount of time was for good reason. The reason we keep speculating about. Maybe... A case that I draw to mind is that of Gypsy Blanchard Mm -hmm. and the murder of her mother. The judge in that case found there were mitigating circumstances that explained how and why this happened, and it was extensive abuse. And you see a lenient sentence in her case. She got 10 years when it was a very planned first-degree murder under any other definition we just have to use our deductive reasoning to figure out why she would have been given such a lenient sentence, right? Another question we have to ask is whether Sam's release was indicative of how the justice system responds to perceptions of what drives women to violence. Is this an example of women getting lenient treatment over men, demonstrating, you know, compassion as opposed to punishing Sam for possible transgressions against gender stereotypes? What we discovered about Sam following her release was based largely on what we could find on social media. 
So she appeared to be out around early 2011, and she was around 20 years old at the time. So that makes it about five years in total following her arrest. And here's what you need to know in terms of what we could find about Cindy, right? Like, I mean, she's the victim here. So Cindy was born on September 24th of 1951, but we don't know whether she was born in the United States or whether she immigrated here from China. Either way, it appears that Cindy met and married her husband, Sam's dad, in New York City. And then Sam arrived in November of 1990. And then her younger brother arrived four years later. At some point, the family moved to Texas, and this is where Sam ended up attending Bel Air High School. Now, again, the details are really vague. But according to one of Sam's social media posts, at some point, both an uncle of hers and her own father also ended up in prison. But we don't know when, where, for how long, or what offenses they were convicted of. We didn't go digging. They're not the focus of this. But we do think it's kind of interesting and lends some context to Sam's experience, right? And as far as Sam's father distancing himself from his daughter on the heels of Cindy's murder, it's unclear how that actually played out because we were able to find some pictures of them together that had been taken during her incarceration. So I don't think he actually really bailed on her. And following Sam's release, it appears that things were kind of up and down for her, as I think one would expect. She stayed in Texas, but moved away from Houston, reconnecting with some of her friends and pursuing her talents in photography and art. She also continued with her college studies in psychology, which she started while she was in detention. Right. But in 2013, she was in a really horrible motorcycle accident, which almost killed her. Then in April of 2016, she ended up in jail once again on something called a blue warrant, which applies mainly to individuals who violate their parole or commit a new crime. And we have no idea what offense Sam committed or how she breached any parole, but she was released in June the following year. If some of her social media posts are anything to go by, it's clear she remains affected by Cindy's death and still has a lot of love for her mom, posting photos of the pair and saying how much she misses her. But Sam has also made cryptic posts as well, saying things like, even if you hear a bad story about me, understand there was a time I was good to those people too, but they won't tell you that part. Another one says, I knew I loved you when I started making excuses for the way you hurt me. While another laments, you never think that the last time is the last time. You think there will be more. You think you have forever, but you don't. And we can't assume, of course, that all of these relate to her memories of her family, but definitely interesting nonetheless. In the enigmatic nature of what Sam's chosen to share with the world and how she presents herself only adds to this kind of intrigue and nuance of who she is as a person. Not long after her release, she posted a picture of a new tattoo that she got of a Latin phrase, which means the outcome justifies the deed, which is kind of ominous when you know the context of her life. She even describes herself on social media by saying, I am the person my parents warned me about. So despite the gains Sam made following her release, unfortunately, she is once again incarcerated. In June of 2019, Sam was arrested for possession of a controlled substance in a drug-free zone and tampering with or fabricating evidence. Both these charges noted she was a repeat offender, which makes sense given her previous time in jail just three years earlier. In January of 2020, 
And now 29-year-old Sam pled guilty to both charges and was sentenced to eight years in jail, this time as an adult. So as of today, that's where things are currently at. And there are so many possibilities with the story and, of course, so many gaps in the information that it's hard to know how to make sense of it all. According to state records, Sam will be eligible for parole in September of 2025. I don't plan on falling back in with old high school friends or anything. My whole perspective is moving forward. And you know, if she were to fall back into my life, I'd be like, hey, nice to see you. I hope you're doing well, but I got to go. I have an appointment. I don't make time for far gone connections. I prefer not to let my past catch up with me. I don't really hang out with people that I went to high school with anymore. So I hope she does well for herself. Ultimately, Nick wishes Sam well in all of her future endeavors and has compassion for his friend, no matter what led to taking her mom's life. The world's not a a pretty place. It's not a nice place. There is evil out there and there is chaos that does not make sense at all. And you need to have a good head on your shoulders in order to navigate it. And I think that people are capable of change, especially if they make the effort and live the life that they're planning to live, not just for a facade, but for making an actual improvement. Who's to hold that against them? While this has been a story with an obscured beginning, an obscured middle, and a devastating end, at least for Cindy, it's not the end for Sam. Even though she's back in prison right now, she's still a relatively young woman with her entire life ahead of her. We don't know enough about her journey and her own personal struggles through media reporting. Her own social media posts convey a degree of remorse and tremendous pain that she carries on about her mom's death, regardless of the circumstances that may have led to it. And as we all grow and mature in our own emotional intelligence, it's part of the human condition to want to better ourselves. We can't change the past, but we can change the way we approach situations and other people going forward. And we hope that in addition to finding peace, that's what Sam is able to do. huge thank you to Nick for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group because we are talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you want some bonus content and uh, stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode include The Houston Chronicle, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, KOXEFM, The Monitor, Texas Juvenile Justice Department, Vargis Somerset Lawyers, Neil Davis Law Firm, and the Texas District and County Attorneys Association. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.